Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast for Sunday, July 9th, 2023. Today's sermon will be about the simple history of biblical counseling and the direction of biblical counseling for Grace Baptist Church. If you'd like to follow along, please go to gracebaptistchurchnc.org, click the current sermons link at the top, and click today's manuscript. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church. For starters, I want to pray for us. Father, pray that you'll give us clarity today. You'll open our hearts, give us willing minds, that the Spirit would convict us today, Lord. Build our faith in you. And let your word be heard clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I had an interesting short conversation with my daughter right before this started today. And um, she said, how are you doing? And I said, mm-hmm. She goes, oh, you're going to be great. And most of you know me fairly well. You know that I teach on a regular basis, that I teach math in in an elementary school. And it's easy to stand up here and talk to you because I do it all the time, right? But I want you to understand something, and it's something that I told her. If I teach a a kid to do math wrong, I correct that, and we move on, and nothing important comes of it. If I do this wrong, God will judge me. There's a, for every person that stands behind this podium, there is a weight to their being up here. And you need to pray that we don't take that lightly. Because what God has to say is so much more important than the math that I teach on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. And I want you to recognize something. Most of what you hear today will not be my work. I've done a large amount of reading. Um, I have become a reader in the last 20 years anyway. So I love to read, but this has caused me to do a tremendous amount of reading. And what you're going to hear today, and I'm going to bounce back two weeks to John's sermon from Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that, hear this, you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. That's what today is about. Fixing your eyes on Jesus so that you don't grow weary and faint in heart. And to take a play from Jimmy Hubbard's playbook, um, I have to tell you, there's a lot of people that I'm walking in in their shadow today. 
One is the six men that serve as the elders of Grace Baptist Church. To give you some more names that go with this, these are all the people that I've looked at, read through, have listened to over the years regarding these things that I'm going to be talking about. So these are not Greg's words. These are Greg trying to put together all of the things that these different people have talked about, about God's Word. Uh, Some of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, Richard Baxter, John Owen. You know that one. John talks about John Owen all the time. People like Tim Keller, John MacArthur, Jay Adams, David Powlison, Wayne Mack, Jim Neuheiser, Heath Lambert, Stuart Scott, Ed Welch, Sinclair Ferguson, Dale Johnson. These men have made their life's passion the ability to study the Word and figure out how it applies to day-to-day life. So this is not Greg figuring this out on his own. This is Greg going back to the people who have searched the Word, who have looked and seen what the Word said, and did hundreds and hundreds of hours of research in the Word that I haven't done. These are the cloud of witnesses that that we are surrounded by. So I have attempted to synthesize their work into a simple history of the biblical counseling. So that's going to be the first thing I talk about today. The simple history of biblical counseling. And then the direction of biblical counseling for Grace Baptist Church. If you're really wanting more information on the history of biblical counseling, there's two main books. The seminal work on the history of biblical counseling called The History and Context of Biblical Counseling by David Pallison. The second book is by Heath Lambert uh, called The History of Biblical Counseling After Adams. And I'll get to who Jay Adams is in a minute. There are three major headings that drive today. One, the history of biblical counseling movement. And I need to say thank you to Tim Keller, David Pallison, and Heath Lambert because they are the ones that brought this history together for me. Number two, how is Grace Baptist doing in this personal ministry of the Word? You notice I didn't say biblical counseling. I'll get to that in a minute. And number three, where does grace go from here? So number one, the history of the biblical counseling movement. History starts, the biblical counseling history starts in a time when counseling was not the societal buzzword. This starts at a time when counseling was known as the personal ministry of the Word, time of the Puritans, before 1850. And that's a long time ago. Yes, but it's important that you understand this. Before the Civil War, the Puritans took this very, very seriously. Hundreds of works were done. Men like Richard Baxter wrote 900 pages called the Christian Directory, where he focused on all of life's problems and how Scripture talks about it. 900 pages, two columns, tiny print. That's a lot of writing done on life's problems. Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He discusses 12 types of temptation, eight varieties of discouragement, eight kinds of depression, and four classes of spiritual pride. And this was early 1800s. 
A host of Puritans, from Jonathan Edward to Ichabod Spencer, have written treatises, have written articles, have written letters to their church members dealing with everyday life's problems from the Bible. These men were most certainly physicians of the soul. So what happened about 1850? Well, from 1850 to 1970, things started to change. First, the Civil War happened. Why is that a big deal? Well, Civil War, if hopefully you know what the Civil War is, and the fact that it was a grisly, messy business. And men back then had to be crude and rude and violent, and it was considered unmanly to care for the soul. So pastors stopped caring for the souls because it was considered girly. Add to that, revivalism grows. Now when I say that, please understand what I mean by that. Seasons of revival, which is what we all pray for, changed to revival meetings. Revival as a work of God was replaced by revivalism being engineered by man. Crowds focusing on salvation, which is not a bad thing, but it became the sole focus. Discipleship was lost sight of. The process of growth, of sanctification was lost sight of. It was only focused on getting people saved, building those numbers. Well, the problem is when you lose sight of discipleship, when you lose sight of helping people deal with day-to-day problems, you get this attitude. Well, take this verse and pray about it, and it will all go away. Does that sound familiar? It should, because that's been how the church has dealt with problems over the last 150 years. And when your problem doesn't go away, you don't have enough faith. Now, I know this is real, because it's the exact thing that goes on in my heart when a problem comes up. Now, I'm not saying, you've heard me up here before, I'm not saying sin is not the problem. Because sin may be your problem. May. So let me put it this way. Sin is always the problem. The question is, is it your sin that's the problem? You have a sin that's in the, in the way. Is somebody else's sin causing you suffering? So you didn't do anything wrong, but you're suffering for somebody else's sin. Or is your suffering because there is sin we live in a fallen world and there's sickness and death and suffering so sin is always the problem it's just a question whether it's your sin somebody else's sin or just the fact that it's sin in general and a lot of the sicknesses and the and the sufferings that come from physical illnesses ultimately are a cause of sin right because before the fall there wasn't those things so sin is ultimately the problem but it's just a question of degree. Is it your sin, somebody else's sin, or just sin in general? But the point is, we all have, I have, and I, I know I've talked to a couple of people here at Grace that are in the same, same situation. They see their struggle, and they're saying, I just don't have enough faith. Well, that, 
it's good that you're thinking that way. It's good that that's conscious of you, but it's probably a too simplistic way to look at it. That's the, that's the mindset the church has been in for 150 years. Just say a prayer and read this verse and it's, it'll all go away. And it doesn't happen. And then we don't know what to do because it didn't work. Well, it's because we didn't follow what Scripture teaches and that's where we're going. Well, after revivalism comes along in history, then we get uh, 1869. Anybody know what happened in 1869? Sorry, my teacher's coming out. Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. And in 1869, Darwin's Origin of Species casts a cloud on the church and on the Bible. Now you've got a problem with the fundamental versus the modernist movement in the church. Because what Darwin did is said, see, science shows science. Remember, you know, I, you know, I'm a big fan of science. So the real science doesn't show, but Darwin's science shows that the Bible can't be trusted because Genesis can't be trusted. And if you can't trust Genesis, what, what, what can you trust with the rest of it? So you've got two different battles going on here. You've got the modernists that say, well, see, Darwin's science has proven that the Bible is not true, so we can't trust what the Bible says, so we have to go to psychological sources, and guess what comes out of that? The social gospel. And then you've got the fundamentalists who are saying, no, Scripture is authoritative, Scripture is true, what it says is right, and we have to fight this battle. So now they're fighting for the survival of the authority of Scripture. But because of this battle that's going on, things like discipleship, sanctification, get pushed to the back burner. So now enter the psychological revolution. Mid-1800s to early 1900s. Two names. First one, William Wundt. William Wundt was a psychologist who made psychology credible by making it scientific. So psychology up to that point didn't, didn't really have any credibility, and William Wundt turned it into a science by looking for the physiological aspects of how your physical body affects your emotions and your actions, and he's working to get rid of the spiritual side, and he's trying to make it all about biology. And this is where psychologists get their medical model from William Wundt. His was to focus people's problems rooted in biology, not in the soul, which is directly, uh, it's a push away from faith, but it's directly contrary to what Scripture teaches. Matthew 12, 34 to 37, for the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. The good man brings out of his treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For your, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus' words from Matthew. Not enough. How about from Mark? That what proceeds out of the mouth is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, covetous, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. 
pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within the heart of man. Not from his physical body, from the heart. James 1, 14 and 16, but each person is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is realized, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So William Wundt is trying to push faith away and bring this a physical, biological reason for everything that you do. Well, guess who jumps on that bandwagon? The second name is going to be one that you find very familiar. Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, known for psychotherapy and the talking cure, believed his task was to take counseling from the minister and from the pastor and give it to the, to the secular professional. His goal was to get rid of sin, God, and any necessity of a Savior or of eternal life. By this time, we get to World War I and World War II. And now, Christians and chaplains in the military, they have the Bible, but they don't know what to do with it. So, before we get too critical of the previous generations, because we have some of the same failings that they have, we need to remember three things. Number one, most people want to help other people. They desire to understand and help people. However, when you take God out of the picture, now you have to look on to something else to figure out a way to do that. And all of these things that happened in the 1800s took people's eyes off of Christ and on themselves and on their experiences and on their other things. Second, counseling is hard to see. The public ministry of the Word is easy to see. When John gets up here every Sunday and preaches, you know it because he's standing here and he is talking to you. It's easy to see. Counseling is hard to see. It doesn't happen from the pulpit. It doesn't happen on the street corner. It happens on the couch. It happens on the disc golf course. It happens sitting in Porky's. People don't see counseling happening. It's hard to see. Third, counseling's hard to do. You know why? It requires work. It requires sacrifice. And it requires study. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth it requires work then we come to 1970 j adams bursts on the scene with his book competent to counsel the whole point of his book is to bring attention to christians this is important not to the secular world not to the psychology world to christians that you've dropped the ball Your failures in counseling and, and what you need to redo, redo to restore theological foundations of the Word of God in counseling. He challenged the professional class of counselor, stating that they were usurping the duties and the responsibilities of a pastor, 
specifically, and the church in general? The answer, to, and this was Jay Adams, the answer to pastors and church members who have lost the ability to counsel with the Word of God was not to hand it over to the secular professional, but to dig into the Word of God to see what the author of creation says about his creation. Now, the big conflict at this point in 1970 was Jay Adams with the integrationist movement. What is the integrationist movement? It's an evangelical Christian counselor who thinks he can take the psychologies of the world, Freud, Skinner, Watson, and merge them with Scripture and create what's called Christian counseling. This is where his conflict was. Most integrationists, and, and there were there's a wide range of integrationists, so it's hard to be it's hard to pigeonhole them in one spot because you have people like Larry Crabb and Gary Collins who were the most conservative of the integrationists who really did believe that the Bible was authoritative. But they were, they were licensed counselors. They had went to college and got a license and that was their job and they were living that battle of here's Scripture and i got to make a paycheck. And then you get to the, the more liberal uh, counselors, the uh, Christian counselors who were just like, you're a nut to Jay Adams. So th there was a wide range in here of integrationists. But what it boiled down to was this. The main battle cry for integrationists is the Bible is not a, a, the uh, the Bible is not a counseling textbook and it doesn't provide counseling method. Because of that, they basically said it's trash. It's worthless. It's not useful. There were a few, Larry Crabb and Gary Collins, who said, this is a good conversation, but Jay Adams was, he was fighting a battle for the authority of Scripture and counseling. And he was literally fighting the battle. And he was fighting like a man who was the only man left. Because at this point, he was the only man left. So he didn't make too many friends in the integrationist movement. Let's just put it that way. Now, the problem is the integrationists had some good points. They said, this is one thing that's wrong. This is the second thing that's wrong. This is the third thing that's wrong. And, and if you want more in the history of the things that they said were wrong, um, look at Heath Lambert's book because he goes into talking about each of those things. What the second generation of biblical counselors, the first generation was Jay Adams, and there are other people that they would put in there, uh, John MacArthur, they would put in there as well. Um, the second generation, David Pallison and Wayne Mack, said, you know what, the integrationists are right. These are areas that Jay Adams' work was weak and it was, it, there were things that were wrong. But instead of just throwing it away, let's look back at Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about that and build from that. And Jay Adams will be the first, if you were to read his books, he'd be the first to say this, I am building a bridge across the chasm. Some of the planks that I'm putting in are good, strong, and firm biblically. Some of them I'm putting in are rotten, and some of them are missing. But I'm building the bridge. There need to be others who come behind me who repair the ones that are rotten and fill in the ones that are empty. And that's what David Pallison, Wayne Mack, Heath Lambert, and a lot of these other guys had done. They've come behind 
and started filling in those gaps on J. Adams Bridge. Okay? So, that brings us to today. Well, within 50 years. Because J. Adams was in 70 and it's 2023. So, we've had 53 years of biblical counseling come back. So, that brings us to where grace is today. So, let's talk about grace. Before we talk about this, this is important. And, and you're going to notice that I'm not, I'm going to at this point stop using the phrase biblical counseling. And you'll hear me say the personal ministry of the word. And I'll go into in a little bit why that's important. Before we get into how grace is doing in this personal ministry of the word, we need to make something very, very clear. Okay? I am not talking about salvation. Okay? If you are not a believer, what I am talking about and what I'm getting ready to talk about is going to make absolutely no sense to you. You think I'm a maniac, and that's okay. This is not about salvation. Okay? This is about sanctification. Salvation is the work that God does in you. You have no control. You have no ability to save yourself. God does all the saving. However, after you're saved, God calls on you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Because He gives you the, the, the ability, the power, and the will to do what He has asked you to do. So what we're talking about is the sanctification process. The part where you have something to do. You don't have anything to do with your salvation. You do have something to do with your sanctification. And that's what we're talking about is your sanctification. Okay? That's important. Because without salvation, there is no sanctification. Right? But you don't have any control over your salvation. God calls you. Once He calls you, you have to respond. Once you respond, then your sanctification begins. Now let's talk about that sanctification process. 1 Corinthians 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are now necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the members that lacked, so that there be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, we all suffer with them. If one member is honored, we all rejoice with them. So this is coming to the fact that if you're a believer, you are part of the body of Christ, and as the body of Christ, you are called to care for one another. 1 Peter 4, 8-10. and 10, 8 through 10. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Love for one another. 
Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Employ it in serving one another. Ephesians 4, And He Himself gave as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. We've got six of those. Okay? Our elders that are here. What's their role? For equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It's not their job to take care of each other. It's their job to teach us to take care of each other. You've heard me say that before. Ed Welch has a quote, and you're going to hear this more than once today. To be in the body of Christ is to be a pastor. Not an ordained pastor, but a pastor in that we are all called to care for the souls that are around us. Passivity is out of the question. I have been made alive in Christ and I have much to do as I follow the lead of the early church as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In the midst of this activity, I want to devote regular time to assessing myself as a family member. So, Grace, let's assess ourselves as family members. Are you ready? Number one, we are commanded to love one another. Let me read you these verses, and then in your mind, in your heart, figure out how you're doing. John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Romans 13.8 Owe nothing except to love one another. First Thessalonians 4 9. Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. First Peter 1, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. So that's first first question. How's your love for each other? You know, the hardest thing about getting up here, and I'm, I am so thankful that I don't have to do it every single week because I'm not sure I have the ability and the strength to fix everything that I learn every time I teach if I had to do it every week. Because this, this lesson has beat me into the ground this week. 
And spending a week with my family at the beach has reminded me just how much I don't do this. I don't love my wife like I should. I don't love my children like I should. I don't love my grandchildren like I should. And I sure don't love you people like I should. How's your love? Let's try a couple of others. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another. 1 Corinthians 12 Have the same care for one another. You know, have the same care for somebody. Think of the person in the room that you like the most. That if you were given the opportunity to hang out with them this afternoon, you would take it without even a second thought. You would even walk away and let your wife sit at home just so you could hang out with them. Right? Now think of the same person uh, or a different person that you absolutely avoid looking at when they walk in the room because you don't want to start a conversation with them. <clears throat> Have the same care for one another. Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Speak the truth in love. Speak truth to one another. You know how hard that is? When you see somebody you know is doing something that Scripture says they shouldn't be doing, and you are called to go to them in love and say, you know, Ephesians 6.4 says, da 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 and what I'm seeing in, our, in your reactions is that's not happening. I love you, and I don't want to see you being disobedient. It's so hard. Colossians 3.16, teaching and monishing one another. We're called to teach each other. Not just Greg on Sundays in Sunday school, and not just John or one of the elders from the pulpit. You are called to teach us just like we are called to teach you. Teach one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, comfort one another. We have a need of that right now, don't we? in our body. Comfort and build up one another. So, this is how we're supposed to be towards one another, and I just want you to know, I picked the first eight, but there's 28 more one another's in Scripture that if you need me to pound on you a little more, I can pull them out. Okay? This is just the first eight one another's. So, how have you done these last few years here at Grace? So let me make this a little more specific. I'm not going to use names, okay? But in the last few years at Grace, there's been a lot of things going on. Some just in the last 24 hours. Think, think about those that are around you that struggle with anxiety or depression. Think about those that are around you that have young children and they need older wisdom. Young parents that need older wisdom. Maybe they just need an hour to themselves. Are you willing to open your door to those kids so that those parents can go do what they need to do? Hang out for an hour, just the two of them? Family chaos, children behaving sinfully, grandchildren behaving sinfully, parents and grandparents behaving sinfully. 
loss of family members. We've seen a lot of loss at Grace, haven't we? Job losses, job issues, addictions. Yeah, they're here. Food, drink, sports, exercise, video games. Did I get you yet? Because I got me. Abuse. Domestic abuse, child abuse. Yeah, that's been at grace, folks. Worthlessness. There are people around you that sit next to you on Sunday mornings that feel worthless. They come in here, they don't know why they're here, nobody talks to them, and when somebody asks them how they're doing, their comment is, feeling pretty worthless. Disagreements on how the elders, the deacons, the home group leaders, or your neighbors sitting around you do things? Why have we done so poorly? Do you know of the difficulties of the members in your home group? Because they're there. Four thoughts on why we have poor care. You act like the Bible's not sufficient. You say you believe the Bible's sufficient, but practically you're an atheist. Now, originally when this was planned months ago, um, the elders asked me what I was going to teach on. I said, sufficiency of Scripture, that's what I'm going to teach on. And I'm going to be honest, I can't teach on the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not possible. And this is why. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says, right? So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that He is truly man and truly God? Do you believe in the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? I can't prove any of those things to you. You know why? Because they are evidences of your faith. You believe it because God has said it. And guess what? The sufficiency, the sufficiency of Scripture is an evidence of your faith. Nothing I can do can prove to you that the Word of God is sufficient if you don't believe it. So if you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, you need to be looking at yourself. Now, again, here, you may be a practical atheist. You say you believe that the Scripture is sufficient, but you don't really believe that God and His Word is enough for your problems. And, and, and I'm already hearing it, okay? So let me tell you what I'm hearing. Oh yeah? Prove to me that the Bible is sufficient for suicide, for homosexuality, gender dysphoria, anxiety, eating disorders. Prove it to me. I've already told you, I can't. I can't prove it to you. Okay? It's part of faith that's handed down. However, people will say that the Bible's not sufficient. 
They go outside of the church to find answers. We bought into the lie that problems have to be handled by the professional who has to get a paycheck, by the way. Handled by the professional and not by God. And these professionals, most of them, not all, have anti-God foundations. You believe in Freud, you believe in Skinner, you believe in Watson, you believe in the things that they've taught, you're believing somebody who absolutely has said that either God doesn't exist or He is a problem. So you're going to somebody whose foundations are not the Bible and not the God of the universe to get answers to your life's problems. Or you go to a Christian counselor who says, yeah, I do believe those things, but I do believe the Bible can help in some ways. So they try to sanitize that secular methodology with some Bible verses. The problem with that is they're relying on the wrong foundation. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Freud, Skinner, Watson were scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You hear what the expectation is? Don't go to the scoffers. Get into the Word. Day and night. Hebrews, do not be carried away by various strange teachings. John will get to that in a little while. Ephesians 4, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by various waves and every wind of doctrine, by trickiness of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. Now, besides, okay, I'm switching roles here. Besides, I just don't know how to deal with all those psychological terms. Here, David Pallison has an answer for you. People must read the Bible as those who seek to learn God's language for understanding people's problems. God created you. Don't you think He knows how to fix you? So, second second, uh, reason we do things poorly, it's John's job. Gil's job. Hey, we got Gil now, right? So it's his job, right? It's his job to do the counseling. And you're right. It's John's job. It's Gil's job. It's Jimmy's job. It's Blaine's job. It's Scott's job. It's their job. And they're doing it. Remember, I said at the beginning, the pastor specifically and the church generally. So yes, they're doing it. And they need to be training us to do it as well. And I quoted Ephesians 4 earlier. He, gave himself, he, he, gave, he himself gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. 1 Timothy 4, in pointing out these things, brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being nourished on the word of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following, but refuse godless myths fit only for old women. Train yourself for the purpose of godliness. John 13, a commandment I give you, love one another. Keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? John 15, 
love one another. 1 John 4, love one another. So here, here's my quit for you, okay? Quit thinking of what I'm talking about as biblical counseling. All right? Use, different, use your, change your vocabulary. The personal ministry of the word. Or how about discipleship? What we've been saying for 15 years that we should be doing anyway. We, let's do that. Okay? Um, how about this one? Maybe this is you. I'm too busy in life to deal with other people's problems. I did my time Sunday morning. In other words, I don't really care. Or at least you don't care until you need comfort and someone doesn't show up. Here, Alistair Begg has some words for you. Some people who say they are religious still get nothing out of the Bible's teaching. They listen to sermons Sunday after Sunday looking for reasons not to rest wholly on Christ's completed work. They ask questions aimed at holding the Lord at arm's length and then wonder why they're never given satisfactory answers. That is not the way of a child of God. With meekness and curiosity, we should seek to learn from our teacher. And when our hearts are troubled, come to him humbly, asking for help to be open to the answer and without demanding that Jesus follow our agendas or expectations. Maybe this is you. And, and I want to say that a lot of people I've talked to, this is where many of you are. I don't know how, and it terrifies me to think of trying. So let me give you an encouragement from the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh can boast before God. You know what? Your weakness is exactly what He needs. Because your weakness makes Him look strong. Now, it's time to get to work. Whoop, hold on, I think I jumped a page. Yep, I missed one. So where do we go from here, Grace? First thing is, if none of this has made sense to you, and you think I'm insane? My first thought is, you don't have the gospel. You don't know Christ. You, he has not enlightened your heart to this point to see that he is enough for you. That your sin is keeping you from him. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself. You could have sat in this church for the last 15 years. And if you're like Alice Darabeg said, the person who has been here Sunday after Sunday, and you get nothing from being here, nothing, that says something about your heart. Your sin has kept you from God, and it's time for you to repent. 
It's time for you to seek him because he is seeking you. Somebody in the church sent me an email this, this past week about um, a conversation they were having with a coworker about how, God, how far away God seems from them. And they made a great point. God's not far away from you. You're far away from him. He's always right here calling you. And he's calling you today. You need to repent. Second, maybe you're somebody who truly is a believer and you've just struggled with this trying to love other people because it doesn't come natural. And you're right, it doesn't. It takes faith. And I was having this conversation with, with Blaine earlier today. The reason that some of this is hard is because you try to do it of your own strength. And it's impossible. You can't do it. But the Spirit can. And if you are truly a believer and the Spirit lives in you, the faith that He has given you is enough to do what He has asked you to do. So, I know that I've failed many times in this area of personal ministry. I could, I could probably go through each row and pull one person from each row and I explain how I failed that person, that family, that person, that family. You can do the same, right? I know you can. So we need the Scriptures to remind us. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following where Jesus leads. We don't have to know how. We just need to be obedient to do it. Asking God to put to death in us what is earthly. And be encouraged because, and if you were in Sunday school this last rotation, you've heard this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you somebody who has struggled because you want to do this, but it just isn't happening? Come to Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. Yoke is a sign of work, right? But we're working yoked to Christ. So we're still doing the work, but it's through His power. Colossians 1, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attain, attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. You hear all those words? It's His work in us. His power He's doing in us. So, let's get to work. Philippians two twelve and 13. Just as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 1 Thessalonians 5, We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, what kind of things would this work look like? 
Number one, pray dangerous prayers. Pray that God's Spirit would convict you in the areas that you need to focus on. Are you denying yourself like you should? Are you dying every day to a specific sin in your life? Do you not have a compassionate heart? God knows where your area is, even if you don't. Pray that he will show it to you. Second, pray that God would slow you down. We live such busy, busy lives. It's hard to be involved in the people around us' lives if we're too busy for them. Pray that God would slow you down. Pray that God would open your eyes to his hurting saints. Maybe you sat here week after week, month after month, year after year, and you don't have a clue what's going on in the lives of the people around you. Pray that God would open your eyes and your hearts to the hurt, to the suffering, to the sorrow, to the pain of the people that are around you. Because until you see it, you can't, you can't serve one another. Obey when he answers. It's easy to pray. It's hard to obey. I can say the words, but when he opens the door, you've got to walk through it. So when you pray that God will bring somebody into your life that you can minister to, when that ministry shows up on your front door, you need to open the door. Pray that God would help you walk towards one hurting person. Somebody here at Grace. Somebody in your home group. Sometimes, uh, Ed Welch makes a comment, um, sometimes the best way to find out um, where somebody is at is to ask the question, how are you doing? Really? As you listen to people in your home group, in your family, at work, look for those difficult topics that you may not be sure how the Bible addresses. Okay, I've already mentioned some of them, but those hard topics are some of the aspects of our living life together as one another. The every day is going to be every day. And you can focus on those every days. But look for those things that you're not sure about. Because... One thing that I've learned is it's usually that conversation that provides a, one of those difficult topics that I then have to go and study about. Because the whole point of this is for you to dig into the Word to see what the Word says about that particular issue. And it may be a complicated issue. I was talking to Blaine earlier about um, end-of-life problems that people tend to have. And how in the church we have generally responded with you see somebody that um, maybe has cancer um, and they start to behave erratically because of the tumors that they have and we think that's a sin issue and we think well they just need to repent no no they have physical illnesses that are changing how their body is working and it's affecting their mind in those moments, we need grace and compassion and love and understanding 
that you know that person, you've lived life with that person, you know the heart they have had for God up to this point. And when their body turns against them, you can't hold that as a moral sin. You have to love on that person as they go through these difficulties. So we have to look for those moments where we can love and care for people. And, and if you get stuck, I, I, I created a page at the end on the notes that are on the website of all of the books and the, and the articles and the websites that I have used. And these are when people, somebody says to me, I, I have it all the time. Somebody comes and says, how do I deal with this issue? Where do you think I go to look first? These places. Because these guys have already done the work. I'm just going to figure out where in the Bible they're looking for help. And then I go and look in the Bible and say, man, I never saw that before. We have prov- this is provided for you, but you, you may have one of those moments where you'll come to me or you'll come to one of the elders and say, and say what do I do here? And, and if you come to John or me, I'm probably gonna give, we're probably going to give you a book or a booklet. I'll give you a website. I'll give you an article to read. But I'm not giving you the answer. Because it's not about the answer. It's about how well you know this. So the work that I'm going to give you to do is going to drive you back here to see what Scripture says about that problem that you're asking about so that you can figure out what God is saying about that problem. As you figure that out, then you have it to give to somebody else. That's the point understanding and learning this so that you can provide comfort and care and love and serve the people that are sitting around you. Preferably, the ones in your house is the best place to start. So uh, I'm going to throw out a a plug here, okay? Um, The the last thing that I'm going to throw out for you to work on is come to Sunday school. We're starting Sunday school again in September. And the whole purpose of today was to give you a foundation on what biblical counseling is, what the, what the, the personal ministry of the Word is, and kind of where we've gotten to this point. And where we're moving forward is, starting in September, the 10-week Sunday school, 9-10 week Sunday school rotation, is going to be specific to areas in your life that are practical and how we take this word and we apply it to those practical issues. I'm not going to give you all 10, but I'll give you the first six. Okay? The first thing we're going to look at is giving hope. Giving hope. Every problem that you come across, every person that has a struggle, every issue starts with a loss of hope. And you have to be able to give hope first. Second week, we're going to do conflict resolution and peacemaking. Third week, husband and wife conflicts. Um, And I'll be honest, uh, those of you that are still single, you need to come anyway. Because it goes with that, those conflict issues are going to play out in your work, in your family, and they can be applied across the board. Uh, parenting issues. 
week four. And that would include parenting adult children who tend to do things that you don't agree with. Five, anxiety and depression. Is gonna, that's going to be one week. And then I've got four or five other weeks of very specific topics. Um, I want to thank you for um, those of you that have responded to my email this, these past two weeks. Um, I'm getting some great feedback on people, that, uh, real life issues that you're coming across, that you're going, what do I do in this moment? And I want to thank you for those emails. Keep them coming because um, they're going to help build the last couple of weeks of Sunday school. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, you have called us to do one anothering. You have called us to the personal ministry of the Word. Father, I know I have not been faithful in my personal ministry. And we have struggled to love one another like you have loved us. Please forgive me. Forgive us for not loving like you have loved. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Thank you for your forgiveness for our lovelessness. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and not in our own strength, help us to be more faithful in loving one another and caring for one another as you have laid out in your word. For those who have no faith, who have no repentance, help them to trust in the work of Christ on their behalf. We beg that you will convict their hearts, that you will call them to yourselves, especially if they have sat under preaching of your word for years and have had a cold heart. Lord, draw them, give them a heart of flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons at podbean.com. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove to find us. You can also find us on Apple Podcast. Search Grace Baptist Church, China Grove. You can also join us at the South Rowan YMCA, 950 Kimball Road, China Grove, North Carolina. We meet on Sunday mornings at 930 for fellowship and service starts at 10. Thank you for listening and remember to be intentional in making disciples this week.